everyone here today. I'm sure you're all looking forward to spending some time with the family today and and enjoying the what have we got? Turkey. What have we got on the menu today? Turkey, pork, Prawn, prawns. 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 Some people are living out. Vegemite sandwich over there on the right hand side. I'm sure whatever it is, um, it'll be a good time. Uh, good time with your uh, with your family. Some have already started eating by the looks of it. Um, Luke, <laughs> let's, uh, let's look at the message today, let's look at the message today, Luke chapter 2, I count myself in that category by the way, okay, Luke chapter 2 verse 8 to 20, we're just, we've read uh, this uh, passage already, but we'll read it again, Luke chapter 2 verse 8. Read with me. And they were in the same country, shepherds abiding in the field, watch, uh, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Let's uh, commit this time to the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you once again that you have uh, allowed us to look into your word and given us this opportunity, Father, to learn more of you. And Father, I pray that our hearts, our minds, Father, as we uh, remember this day, Lord, and looking forward to spending some time with our families, that we would put you first. Father, that we would commit this day to you, as we commit every Sunday to you, but that our lives indeed would be um, a blessing to those people around us, and that we would love you with all of our heart, mind, soul and strength, Father and that people would see your love in us. We pray that you would bless us now as we uh, once again uh, hear from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The last message I gave, um, the, the main message about that was um, that while God had declared his uh, message to the world that a saviour was coming, and when this saviour came, whether it was in Bethlehem or whether it was anywhere else, the Bible says they just were not ready to receive him. They weren't ready. Um, it says that, um, that while Bethlehem slept nice and cosy in their bed that night, there was no room for the Son of God to be born. So the Son of God essentially had to be born uh, in a stable and there wasn't room for an expectant woman um, that the king of the universe essentially had a, a proper place 
for his birth. And even after we looked at, after he'd grown into a man, after about 30 years, um, God sent a messenger even, who he promised in the Bible, to declare and prepare the way for, uh, for, the, for the Messiah to come. And even after he had uh, told uh, the Jews that the Messiah was on his way and that they were to prepare themselves and to make the, the, uh, the pathway straight for him, the Bible says they still weren't ready to receive him. Even after many prophecies in the Bible uh, foretelling his, uh, his circumstances in which he would be born, where he would be born, what lineage he would be born in, what it would look like, what circumstances he would be born in, and so on and so on. It gave so, God gave so much detail, they should have essentially known where exactly he was. I mean, think of it. How many families would have been descended from lineage of David out of the whole country? Wouldn't have been too hard to keep track of the lineage of David. You know what I mean? And then to say, all right, where are these guys at the moment? And they already knew in advance where he would be born. So they knew if you're in David's family, if, if you're a descendant of David and you're spending time in Bethlehem, you'd be keeping track of it, wouldn't you? But they weren't. And even to the point where he, he came and presented himself to the word, world, the Bible says that the sad description that's given to us in John was very real. It says he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. And it says that he came unto his own and his own received him not. So today we're looking at a, a different scenario. Today we're looking at a small unassuming group of people who weren't highly educated, who weren't powerful, who weren't the rulers or who weren't anything special. They were essentially a bunch of guys looking after some sheep and they were privileged enough to get the official announcement from God himself that his son was being born into the world. And how did they respond? We see they responded in the right way. So today I would like to look at the way they responded to this announcement and for us to have a look at the way they responded with four simple points um, so that when God says something to us, when God makes an announcement to us, and he, he'll normally do that through his word, that we would hopefully respond the same way that they do. Okay? All right. So the Savior of the world had just been born. Look a couple of verses back in verse 6. It says, And so it was that while they were there, um, the days were accomplished, that's in Bethlehem, the days uh, were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth, forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So while the world slept, God the Son was taking on human flesh and was born. And in verse 8 it says, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field. Keeping watch over their flock by night. Isn't it interesting how the Bible now focuses on a completely different group of people? It just, it just takes them out now and it says, and by the way, at that same time, while Jesus was being born, there were some shepherds that were looking after their sheep in the middle of the night. What a fitting picture of these shepherds when we compare them to the leaders of the people 
the leaders of the people, whether they were the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, or whatever it was, they were meant to be the shepherds of their own people, weren't they? On Wednesday evenings, we've been going through the book of Acts, and we're up to chapter 4 now, and there's a specific place where Peter and John perform a miracle in the temple, and this fellow who had been lame all of his life and had been begging for alms um, as they were walking in, probably in one of the entrances to the temple, um, Peter and John basically say to him, we've got no money, but what we have we'll give to you. So they grab him by the hand and they pull him up and the, the fellow who'd been a cripple or lame his whole life all of a sudden jumped up. So as they walked into the temple... Um, the people that are in there, and mind you, the temple is a huge, huge building with a colonnade all the way around where people would, would uh, uh, spend time listening to their favourite teachers and, and talk about certain things. They said the guy that had probably been in front of that temple asking for money for years and years and years. They see him actually jumping around at the Bible, says, leaping for joy and praising God. So this crowd starts to swarm from all parts of the temple, running over to see what's going on. What, who is this guy jumping around and, and making all this, all this noise? And they realise it's him. The fellow they've probably been walking past for who knows how long. All of a sudden they see this guy jumping up and down. So the people are curious about what's going on. How did this guy, who was, who was crippled, who was lame, all of a sudden now he finds himself jumping up and down, leaping for joy. And Peter begins to give him a sermon. Peter takes the opportunity to explain, well, this is what's happened. This is why this particular person you see in front of you, who was born lame, can now jump up and down and rejoice. And it says in that particular day that 5,000 people... Now, imagine how many people there would have been in the temple. 5,000 people came to believe in the message. Well, after that, a problem happened. You see the security guards, the temple, uh, the, the fellows who were in charge of you know, security and, uh, and everything like that, um, and the leaders and the priests were, got upset because it was causing too much of a commotion, you see. And plus they found out that these people were preaching about Jesus in the temple. So they went around there and they, um, they said, what's going on over here? And Peter said, well, basically this is what's, this is what's happened. So what do they do? They put Peter and John in jail overnight. They put them in the lockup, and they said, we'll take care of you in the morning. They tried to disperse the crowd. In the morning, they, um, they called together the leaders, the priests, and all the people that are in, in charge of the whole thing. And it says that when they, they pulled them in front of them and Peter gave them a pretty strong sort of sermon, he basically said to them, this is what, this is, why this fellow is able to walk again because we've done this in Jesus' name and this is um, the person that you rejected as leaders. You are you were meant to be the shepherds of your people. You should have realised when he was coming. You should have been the ones to recognise him first before everyone else and say, he fits the description. He's the one who fulfills all the uh, prophecies. Start to follow him. But no. The Bible says in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, it says, And Peter said these words to them. He says, This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Now, that's a quite an offensive thing to say. 
to them. Because he was essentially saying, this fellow who you set at naught, which means you actually valued him for nothing. You didn't value him at all. You just saw him as a threat and you chose to kill him. He has now, God has chosen to make him the head of the corner of a new building. Not the same building that you've been building up. And these were the builders of their society. The shepherds of Israel had missed the Messiah and were even trying to stop his name now from being mentioned again. They had killed him and now the miracles were being performed. And once again, this was meant to be for them a sign that God had ordained Jesus to be the Messiah. Instead, they missed it again. You have people that are, that are born lame walking and leaping. They should have realized and said, hang on a sec, this is a sign. Because the Bible predicted that those who were blind would see and those who were lame would walk. They should have realized what these signs were pointing to. Instead, once again, they fell into the same trap that they were falling into before and they saw him as a threat. So they, they told Peter and John and all the disciples, we're not, you're not allowed to preach in his name anymore. We don't want you mentioning his name in this temple anymore. But here we see some simple shepherds watching their sheep, watching their flock by night. And shepherds are meant to do what? Shepherds are meant to protect their sheep. They're meant to lead them to pasture. They're meant to lead them to water. They're meant to look after the sheep. And that's what these men were doing. They weren't the highly educated, powerful people. Instead, they were simple guys who were doing the job they had been called to do. They were simply obeying. And God, did God go or come to the actual, uh, to the, the powerful people or the highly educated people? He didn't. He decided to, to share the message with those who were just faithfully doing what they were asked to do. And it says in verse 9 of Luke chapter 2, it says, And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. You know, it's telling also that Jesus was born at night. The world was in a state of darkness during that time. It wasn't just physically dark, but it was spiritually dark, just as our world is spiritually dark today. And yes, there are spots of light, and there are, there are, there are places where where the light is being shone. But it's telling that these fellows who were looking after their sheep were looking after them at, at night. And Jesus was born at night. It's because the whole world was in darkness. And when Jesus was born, the light of the world had come. That's so why you have a star. Because that star was symbolic in a sense that the light had come into the world. And now it says that in the midst of that darkness that the, the, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and it says they were sore afraid. Well, that's uh, another way of saying they were absolutely terrified. Have you ever noticed in the Bible when angels present themselves to people that they're not normally uh, greeted with joy? People are actually afraid and terrified when they see angels. Because they're not normally things you would see. But in the midst of that darkness, all of a sudden the, the, the light comes on 
And the angel of God actually comes upon them. And these fellows are just terrified. You know, there's a, there's a wonderful hymn that we sing. And it says that, um, It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. Sometimes when you see the truth, it's a scary thing, isn't it? Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes people would rather stay ignorant of the, of the truth. They would rather not know it, because if I don't know it, I don't have to worry about it. And sometimes when you bring light into the world, when you bring light and you bring understanding and truth, people will reject it normally because... They would rather stay in the darkness. They would rather not know. But that wasn't true of these fellows. Even though they were afraid of what they had seen, which to them would have been quite an unbelievable sight, they were ready to uh, accept the word. And it's nice that the angels, the first words they actually... Or the angel, the first word... The angel actually said to them was similar to the words that are said in other places in the Bible where people feared them. Look at, look at uh, verse 10. It says, And the angel said unto them, Fear not. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. That's what you'd want to hear, isn't it? So if you saw this, this, this angel in front of you, which would have looked quite spectacular but scary at the same time, the first thing you'd probably want to hear is, don't be afraid. And that's exactly what the angel said to them. And then it built on that. It says, don't be afraid. (coughs) Don't fear. I'm bringing you good tidings. There's good news coming. And that's exactly what the gospel is. The gospel is good news for all the people of the world and all the people who were there. And verse 11 says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. The announcement was very clear and unambiguous. The Messiah who had been promised from the Garden of Eden had now arrived. This was the most important announcement, the most important historic thing that will ever happen in the history of the world God had come into the world. The Messiah had arrived. And then the angel says to them, when you go into the city, this is what you're going to find. This is what you are to look for. These are the signs. It says that you're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. (laughs) I went through half of my life or most of my life not understanding what a manger was. I don't understand what swaddling clothes were. So I realised that a manger was a place where animals ate out of. I always used to think that a manger was a crib, but it wasn't a crib. It's because he was born in a stable that there was no place to actually put him. So they had to clean out a, a trough, a, a feeding trough, and they had to put, the, put him in there. So imagine that. If you have a, if you have a, a child, imagine you have your first child and there's no place, to, there's no nice bassinet or there's no nice uh, cot or something like that. You have to clear out a, a feeding trough where an animal's been eating out of. 
and you have to try and make it as neat or as, or as clean as you possibly can. And then it says that they, they wrapped him in, in swaddling clothes. What's swaddling clothes? Well, essentially, it's, it's strips of material, just strips of material. And they wrapped, I mean, today they wrap up babies quite tightly, don't they? You know, when they're first born. Sometimes you see, you see them like that. And I wonder, how does, it, how does a kid even breathe like that? Yeah, and, and I think they used to wrap them up even tighter a little while ago. They've probably loosened it up a little bit <laughs> these days. But part of the, part of the thing is to, is to make them feel comfortable because in the womb, they are quite restricted. Um, so I think part, part of the reason is to keep them nice and tight and keep them warm and, and keep them uh, secure and they sleep better apparently. Well, in Jesus, with Jesus, they, had to, they wrapped him up with strips of cloth um, in the same sort of way. But they were strips of cloth. Well, strips of cloth were, were probably commonly held and used, and you probably carry them around with you for a number of good reasons in those days. They weren't necessarily just to, just to wrap up a baby, but you used to have, I mean, Band-Aids. When were Band-Aids invented? Didn't have Band-Aids in those days. <clears throat> And there are probably another number of other reasons that you'd carry cloths for cleaning, for wrapping up, for doing a whole lot of other things, so that they'd be a common thing that you'd have. And that's what they wrapped him up with, a number of cloths, until they got him nice and tight, and they put him in a feeding trough. It's nice to know that his parents loved him and looked after him with whatever they had at their disposal. Verse 13 says, And suddenly there was uh, with the angel that presented this specific uh, message to them. And we don't know if it was Gabriel. It may have been Gabriel. I mean, Gabriel was, was uh, pretty active around this time. He'd already been to, he'd already been to speak to Joseph. And he'd spoke to, uh, to Mary as well. It could have been uh, Gabriel. Gabriel already was also the angel that spoke to Daniel and a number of other messages in the, uh, in the Bible. But it says, and, and suddenly there was with the angel, with that one angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Now imagine, it's, it's probably scary enough to see one angel coming to, to speak to you. But imagine then all of a sudden, God opens up another window into heaven. And you're able to see... All these angels praising and, and, and singing glory to God would have been an, a, an unbelievable sight. But the, the beautiful thing is, is that what they were actually singing, what they were saying, and they were saying glory to God in the highest, which is an angel's job 24-7 to glorify God with whatever they say and whatever they do. But it also says that on earth, peace, goodwill, Toward men, you know what's beautiful about that. And yes, God deserves the glory for whatever He does. But the beautiful thing also about that is that it shows us God's desire towards man too. It shows us that God's desire for mankind is peace. He wants peace with mankind. He wants mankind to be at peace among themselves, but also to be at peace with Him, because from the beginning, mankind has been at war with God. And mankind, even today, is essentially still at war with God. 
They'll do everything to resist him. They'll do everything they possibly can to run from him and to rebel and to live their own lives the way they want to live their lives. And God's all the time saying, come to me. If you want life, come to me. I made you. I know you. I know your name. And I love you. But the majority of mankind doesn't hear those words. So the majority of mankind spends time in rebellion, spends time in war with God. But God's desire from the beginning has been to have peace with man and for man to be at peace with himself because that's one thing we don't have. In the world we we live in today, there is no peace, not with God, and there is no peace among men. There There is no peace in the family. There is no peace in our government. There is no peace between governments and countries. We don't see peace in this world. If anything, all we see is where there's a lack of war. That's not peace. You understand that, don't you? A lack of war isn't peace. A lack of war is just a cessation of, of killing each other. But most people are not at peace. And most governments are not at peace. Most people aren't at peace within themselves. We see that most of the people in the world have no peace within themselves. The only true peace comes from knowing God. That's why God sent us who he calls the Prince of Peace. And that's Jesus Christ. It's only by knowing him that you can have true peace. The true peace within yourself, true peace with other other people, and true peace, most importantly, with God. If you don't have peace with God, you cannot have peace with anyone else. And the other beautiful part of this message is that he says, on earth, peace. And he said, goodwill toward men. And that's the nice thing to know about God. That he's, he's, his will toward me or his desire for me is good. It's not bad. It's only good. And as James the Apostle tells us in chapter 1 verse 17, he says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness near the shadow of turning. The other nice thing about God that we find consistently through the Bible is that he wants good for us. He wants good for us. He won't force good on us. He won't force us to do it his way or force us to accept his way. But the Bible says that he wants good for us. And from the beginning, the devil's job has been to convince mankind that God does not want good for us. That's what he did from the beginning and that's what he continues to do today. That God either doesn't exist and if he does exist, he is a tyrant who wants only bad for us. But the Bible says very clearly through, from the beginning to the end that God wants only good for mankind. And he showed that most clearly when he sent his son into the world. Now let's see the shepherd's response. Okay, so we've set the background. Now we're going to see four simple truths about how these shepherds responded. Look at verse 15. The first thing we see, it says they decided to see for themselves the things that they had heard from God. They decided to check it out for themselves. In Luke, uh, Luke 2, 15, it says, And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing 
which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. They wanted to check it out for themselves. These guys got excited about the truth. They'd heard something. They got a special message and they wanted to check it out to make sure if it was real. They wanted to check it out and see it for themselves. And once again, we see a vast contrast between the way these men responded to the message and the way that the leaders in Israel who should have known better responded to the message. One group wanted to kill Jesus and they did. They killed him because he he represented a threat to them even though they should have known that his coming was for their good. And here we have another group who got excited about this message who got a message from God and said, we want to go and see this thing for ourselves. We see Herod, who was the king at that time, who heard from the wise men that they'd seen his star in the east and they'd come and they said to Herod, we've come to see the king of the Jews. Who was the king of the Jews at that stage? It was Herod. Herod responded by wanting to kill Jesus. So he says to the wise men, you go and find out where he is. You follow that star of yours. Go to Bethlehem and when you find him, come back to me and let me know exactly where he is because I'd like to go and worship him too. He wasn't looking to worship anyone. Instead, he was looking to find out where Jesus was born so he could go and kill him because he saw Jesus as a threat. And the Bible says that he actually killed a number of babies during that time. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17, verse 10. Acts chapter 17, verse 10. I'd like us to compare what the... The shepherds did with what another, another group of people did when they heard the gospel, when they heard the message that was delivered to them by Paul and Silas. It says in Acts chapter 17, verse 10, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore many of them believed, also of honourable women which were Greeks and of men, not a few. Isn't that a... a, 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 That's that's quite a, a, a lovely description of these people in Berea, in that it calls them noble for the way they responded to the actual message. So Paul and Silas delivered a message to them. They went to the the synagogue where the Jews were gathering and they said, guys, we've got a special message for you and this we believe is from God. Um, The Messiah has arrived and his name is Jesus and he was born in Bethlehem and he lived and he died on a cross and he died for the sins of the world and God had already predicted this a long time ago and he rose again on the third day and we're testament to the fact that he is the Messiah because he's changed our lives. So what did the Bereans do? The Bible says that they, they, they 
receive the word with all readiness of mind. They were ready to listen to what was going on. They didn't preconceive. They didn't prejudge. It says they, they listened to what they uh, were saying. And it says then, once they had done that, that they searched the scriptures daily. They searched the scriptures daily. What were they searching? Did they have the, Old, the New Testament with them? No. They had only the Old Testament. So what they did is they went back to the Old Testament and they looked up everything that Paul had mentioned to them. Was it true what he's saying? Is it true? Or is he making this stuff up? And the Bible says that they were looking through these things every day to make sure and compare it because if they made a mistake, they could be in a whole lot of trouble. I mean, let's, let's, be, let's be frank here. There's only one bit in this room, but let's be frank, all of us. If Jesus is not the Messiah... If Jesus is not the Messiah, then we're wasting our time here. And not only are we wasting our time, as the Apostle Paul says, we are the most miserable people on this planet. The most miserable. He says, because we've put our hope in something that's not real. We've put our hope in something that's not true. And so we're going around and we're meeting on Sundays and we're trying to do good to everyone and we're trying to live lives according to God's law and it's not easy and we know it and we're expending all this energy. And this could also this could all be for zero. And Paul says even worse than that. Not only are we the most miserable people on this planet, in other words, the most foolish people on this planet, but on top of that, we are found to be liars because we're found to be liars because we've, we're telling something to the world that God didn't tell us to do. We're telling everyone about Jesus when God never sent Jesus. And even worse than that, Paul says, not only are we miserable, not only are we liars, but Paul says what's even worse is that we're still in our sins. And we have no place else to go. So the Bible commends the Bereans. And you know something? The Bereans weren't saved. The Bereans were unsaved. It calls people who were unsaved noble in the way they responded to the message. It's very rare that you find the Bible speaking about the unsaved person, the unregenerate person as a noble being. But yes, it calls these people noble in the way they responded. So this is a lesson for us. Do we properly examine information that's given to us? Do we check it out like them? Are we as thorough as they were? Or do we just accept anything that comes along and comes our way? Yeah, even the unsaved can be noble. And the shepherds we find who were looking after their sheep were noble with the way they responded to the message. And everyone, we are not called to accept every message and everything that everyone else says. We are to check everything the Bible says. We are to test every spirit that comes our way. When I say spirit, I'm saying every different doctrine and every, every type of teaching. We are to test it to the best of our abilities. Why? Because it affects our eternal existence and it will and it'll affect the people around us as well. Some people in our world and the church has gone this particular way in saying that doctrine isn't important. If doctrine isn't important, 
then the Bible isn't important. And the Bible wouldn't tell us that doctrine saves people. The, one of the lies that's going around in the churches today is that doctrine isn't important. It's a dirty word. Don't, don't argue about doctrine. Don't uh, stand up for right doctrine. Just let everyone say whatever they want to say. This is a lie from the devil. This is a lie that, that's perpetrated throughout the world about every religion. Have you noticed the feeling that you might even get deep down when someone comes to you with a different religion or a different doctrine? Are you scared to offend them? Are you scared to tell them what the truth is? Because everyone else is. We may be different. That's what makes us sometimes difficult to get along with. We're happy to talk about these things. We're happy to defend the position the Bible actually takes. But the world is telling and teaching everyone that you shouldn't be going around talking about your religion. You shouldn't be going around talking about that you've got the truth and no one else has got the truth. You can't be arguing about your religion versus someone else's religion because no one can really know the truth. That's a lie. That's a lie straight from the devil. The devil doesn't want anyone talking about religion. The devil doesn't want you and I sharing our faith and defending the faith. And the devil is even in the churches saying doctrine isn't important. It's the same lie, just spread in a slightly different way. But these Bereans were noble because they wanted to check everything out and we should check everything out. Which is why I encourage every one of you when I preach a message on a Sunday morning, don't just take my word for it. I'm a man. You should be going home and checking what I'm telling you to make sure that I'm telling you the truth. So just like the Bereans and the shepherds, we had to test all things and prove that which is right. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 21 says, Prove all things. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Prove. How do you prove something? If you're not testing it against a standard. And the standard is only one, which is the word of God. Let's look at the second point that they, that they did. It says that they made haste and they didn't waste any time. So not only did they, accept, they receive the message with the right mind frame and they wanted to go and check it out for themselves the Bible says they didn't waste any time look at verse 16 in Luke chapter 2 it says and they came with they, they come with uh, slowness they come with uh, it says they came with haste they ran and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger just as God had told them you know there are some things in life that you just don't leave waiting would you agree with me? There are some things you can leave on the cooker. You can leave on the stove for a little while. But there are some things you don't want to be leaving hanging around at all. You know, if you realised you drove away from your home and you left your front door wide open, tell me how many of us after, we drove, after we've driven uh, 10 minutes wouldn't think to themselves, I better go back and shut my front door. There are some things that you just don't, le you, you don't leave. Depends on where you live, I suppose. Sunbury might be a bit different. You can leave your doors wide open over there. I think it's, a, it's more... Uh... <laughs> there are some things in life that you just don't leave 
you actually have to there, you have to make haste to actually go and get it and check it out and make sure if it's true because it may lead to a catastrophe. Let's say, let's say you were sitting in the room uh, watching TV in your home and there's this, you smell smoke in your home. And you look back behind your shoulder and you see some, uh, small, some small flames, you know, in the corner, in the kitchen. Now, what would you do? Would you, would you let it go and say, look, I'll just finish watching my show and then I'll go back and sort that out later? You'd wait for the ad. Yeah, you'd like Anthony, you'd wait for the commercial to come up, all right? No, you'd jump because it's obvious that if you let that flame go for too much longer, you could lose your whole house if you let it go for any length of time. There are things in life that you just don't leave waiting. They're too important to leave waiting. They're too critical. Now, what if I delay my coming to the Lord, though? What if I delay? God's invited me into a relationship with him. God's invited to save me from hell. And I say, let me finish watching my, my show over here. I'll wait till the commercial break comes up. What if I delay finding out for myself what the Bible really teaches about me and about my destiny? How long will I put up with the possibility that I've been taught lies my entire life? How long are you comfortable with living a lie? Are you comfortable living a lie for a day? Are you comfortable living a lie for a week, a month or a year? If that lie could drag you down to hell, how long will you be comfortable living like that? What if a disaster is just waiting to happen around the corner? You know those, the people that were in Berlin that were enjoying uh, a bit of get-together with their, their families and friends and in that marketplace and they were enjoying uh, some time with their families celebrating Christmas over there. When all of a sudden you look behind you and a truck is coming towards you. And you don't have time to move. You maybe don't have time to even save your kids. What if someone comes through those doors this morning with a gun? Do you think it's improbable? Do you think it's unlikely? Are you aware that they just caught four or five people who were ready to blow up bombs in Melbourne? And if they didn't catch them, they'd be setting them off today? What if tomorrow doesn't come for all of us? How long would you be willing to live with a lie? How long would you be willing to live knowing that lie could take you to hell if you died today? Will I have time to check out the truth? when it's at my leisure will I have the leisure of waiting for a commercial break to come up as Anthony says to go and check this thing out 
or will the house become inflamed and full of smoke and I'll lose my life because of my foolishness? You know, the foolishness of the world is evident in their response to their own mortality. We only live a certain time. And people think to themselves that 70 years is an enormous amount. 70, 80 years is, is an unbelievably long period of time, isn't it? Really? Well, how does eternity sound next to 70 or 80 years? How does that one sound to you? How does 300 years sound? What if you could live for 300 years? What if you could live for 500 years? What if you could live for 1,000 years? How would that change the way you respond? What about if this 70 years that you have here is going to win you 1,000 years? Let's not call it eternity because we get our mind can't handle that. Let's just say that your 70 years here or your 80 years here will determine how you will live the next thousand years now which is the good trade-off how would you live here to win a thousand years wouldn't you make sure everything was right wouldn't you make sure that everything all your ducks were lined up wouldn't you make sure that you checked out all the truth and made sure it was real and that you weren't living a lie yet people are living their 70 years and less and they have an eternity in front of them an absolute eternity. There is no finish. There is no end. And they throw the 70 years away. The world knows that they will die one day. Death is all around us. We see it everywhere we go. But eternity is something that can be ignored. Take your time. There's no rush. No rush. Take it easy. But eternity is ignored at your own peril. To ignore eternity is to ignore the fire starting in your own home and saying, I've got time. When the flames of hell are burning higher and higher around you. To imagine that there is time is to fall for a lie concocted by the one who happily watches multitudes falling off the edge of a proverbial cliff into an eternal flame because they all said the eternal can wait. It wasn't important or it didn't exist. Turn to Luke chapter 19 with me. Luke chapter 19 verse 2. I want to show you a quick, share with you a quick story about someone who understood about haste. Luke chapter 19, verse 2. And it's a, it's a nice story. Jesus is walking down the street with his disciples and he's got people and crowds following him and he's a short little man, a man who's vertically challenged, who couldn't see above the crowds and couldn't, couldn't see what was going on. So he decides to climb a tree to get a better look at this Jesus and what the commotion was all about. In verse, uh, verse 2 it says, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was a chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press. That means a lot of people. There were too many people. Because he was little of stature. And he ran before. That means he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to, for, to see him. For he was to pass that way. 
And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus. How did Jesus know his name? Make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. Look at verse 9. And Jesus said unto him after he'd been in his house and after Zacchaeus had, had repented of his life and given his, his life to Jesus. And when Jesus came to the place, he, uh, sorry, and, uh, and Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house. For so much as uh, he also is the son of Abraham, for the son of man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Thank God Zacchaeus made haste. If you have a crowd, now Jesus stopped under that tree and he's got a whole crowd around him. If Zacchaeus had said, oh, no, no, that's okay. You, you go ahead. I'll take my time up here. Instead, he made haste. And Jesus said to him, make haste. Hurry up. Get down. I'm coming to your home today. One of the greatest lies the enemy spreads is that there's always time. Don't worry. There's always time. You've got tomorrow. And then tomorrow he'll say the same thing to you again. You've got tomorrow. And the next day he'll say the same thing to you again. You've got tomorrow. Caught in a continual loop. But the Bible teaches us that now is a day of salvation. If God gives the message to you, he's saying to you, make haste. Don't waste it. And, and these shepherds, one thing we learned from them is they made haste. They didn't take their time and say, all right, that'll, that'll, that'll be fine, we'll check it out later on. They ran to see where Jesus was and they discovered exactly what they were told was true. Look at the third thing they did. It says they told others of what happened to them. Luke chapter 2, verse 17. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. You know, God expects those who he's given a special message to, who he's changed lives for, to go and share that message with other people. It's critical. Because the message that we've received, God now gives to other people, not through angels, through, through you. If you've received that message and you've found out what God has said to be true, you have an obligation and I have an obligation to go and tell other people who were living in darkness the same truth. And these shepherds did that very thing. They received the message. They checked the message. They verified the message. And the next thing they went and did was they went and told everyone else about it. And they said... Look at what we found out. And we found this thing to be true. Now let me ask you a question. For those of you who have heard the gospel, have you not found it to be true for yourselves? For those of you who have put your faith in Christ, have you not found it to be true? Have you not found him to be completely truthful with everything that he said? Because I have. I found every word that he has said to be completely truthful. There are plenty of lies going around, but Jesus has never let me down. Everything that Jesus has told me is true in every possible way. And I keep checking it every day and still can't find anything wrong. We have an obligation. 
God expects that those who have been given the message and have confirmed the truth and now are living the truth to share that truth. In essence, the same message that the angels delivered, today is born Christ the Lord. That's our message. That Christ the Lord, the master of the universe, the creator of the universe, has been born and we've got more to tell. We can tell them that he died for them on a cross. We can tell them that the world is covered with sin. But Jesus, what Jesus offers them is eternal life because of the sacrifice that he made on the cross. We can tell them that he is alive and he rose from the grave. You know why? Because we experience his love every day. He answers our prayers. We have a relationship with him that the world cannot know. We're called to share that. Don't share, don't hide the relationship you have with God. Because the world doesn't have a relationship with God. The world at most has a religion, has a set of rules they're trying to follow. And they're worshipping every every other deity and everything in their life. We have it. This world we live in in Australia may not be a highly religious culture, but it is. You see, because man is a religious nature by, by, sorry, a religious being by nature. We can't help but worship things. We can't help to devote ourselves to things. So while some other countries in the world might devote themselves to different gods, Australians devote themselves to other things. Maybe it's sport, maybe it's careers, maybe it's money, maybe it's whatever. Whatever it is, men always worship something. They always bow the knee to something and they sacrifice, they make sacrifices to it. As someone who worships their career sacrifices his family to the career. Someone who worships money sacrifices his time and his life to get the money. Don't people sacrifice things? Of course they do. They sacrifice many things to achieve their goal and to worship something in their life. We have a message that there is one God who sent his son into the world to save the world and he alone is worthy to be worshipped. Everything else is second. And let's close up with the final point. It says, and they return to the fields, so they return to their own world to continue their work. They still looked after sheep. They didn't change their whole lifestyle. They didn't have to go and become, you know, masters of theology and all that sort of stuff. It says they went back to their fields. It says, but there's something that was changed within them. It says they were praising God and glorifying him because what they had seen was true. And they were now part of it. Luke 2.20 says, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. You know, the shepherds' lives became a testimony of God's grace. And their motivation was now one of wanting to love God, to glorify Him, to praise Him. That was their aim now. Their lives had changed. They'd never be the same again. They're still looking after sheep, but they're looking after sheep with a totally different perspective. The shepherds' lives became a testimony of God's grace, of His love. And that's what our lives should be looking like. Our lives should be one of glorifying and praising God. There is a difference between us and the world. You know, we, do we come to... Let me ask you a question. 
Do you come to church to praise God? Do you come to church to worship God? Correct. But are you aware that worship and praise should be part of your daily life? All the time. This is not simply the place that we worship and, and praise God. This is the place where we do it together. But out there, your life is meant to be a testimony of praise and worship. Worship is something you do every day of your life. It's, it's, it comes out naturally by the things you say, by, the, by your actions, by your thoughts, by the way see, people see you living your life. Worship God with all of your being, not just with your mouth. See, the mouth is for praise. But worship is not just praise, but it's everything. It shouldn't encompass our whole lives. Is your life a life of worship of God? If people look at you, do they naturally or instinctively see a love that you have for God? Do they see a worshipful life? Do they see a life of praise? What you and I have heard, what you and I have seen, what we have been told, is it translating into that type of life? That's my challenge to you today. As we spend some time with our families now, my challenge to you is this. Let's live like those shepherds. Now they taught us, they can teach us some amazing truths. They checked it out. They found it to be true. They shared it with everyone else. They lived lives that were glorifying to God. Let's do exactly as they did. You know, if we do, we'll live some pretty good lives and we'll look forward to a great eternity. Merry Christmas, everyone. Hope you have a wonderful time with your family. Thank you. Don, you're going to share a song with the same thing.